morning and welcome to Bumper Sticker Faith. Uh, my name is Sam Key and I am joined by uh, co-host Mike Stanzik. Mike, how's it going over there? We're doing okay. Um, as some of the listeners might, might know from previous weeks, we are very much in the land of baby. Uh, he's huge and sleeping a lot better than the other four ever did when they were two months old. So we're grateful for that. Um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a lot for my wife to carry. Are uh, the other ones sleeping great. still, or, I mean, the other kids yeah. are there. Yeah, for the most part, we, we have a two year old, you know, so yeah. he'll get up in the middle of the night occasionally and yeah. just, you know, want, want us to cover him or comfort him or something, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I think for, for having a newborn and five kids, we are actually sleeping really well right now. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Blessings on your wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's great. And uh, an update on Lewis Dooley. He's uh, um, he's coming back uh, soon. So I know people have been wanting to hear from uh, Lewis, but he's been taking a break from this uh, podcast for the summer just to work on some other ministry, exciting ministry things uh, in his life and through his uh, through his prison ministry. But today it's episode 89 didn't think I'd make it to 89, but here, <laughs> but here we are. And we're joined by a very exciting special guest, uh, the Reverend Andrew Lazo. Welcome to uh, Bumper Sticker Faith. Hey, I'm really glad to join with you guys. And so excited about our conversation to come. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. And you're joining us from Florida? Yep. Yeah, I'm in the Orlando area in Winter Garden, Florida. Um, my wife and I have been serving here for about a year. I graduated from seminary last year and, uh, and a seminary classmates, dad loves to train up new priests. Though I'm an old man, I'm a new, new priest. And yeah. so, uh, it's been great to work with him. So it's been very rewarding. And part of what's great is that he considers anything I do on Lewis to be mission work, not personal time. Hmm. So wow. I'm here at the office and that's a, that's a blessing. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about uh, C.S. Lewis and what I think is his greatest uh, book. Um, before that, <laughs> though, before that, though, I want to mention that Andrew's part of a, a podcast. That's, that's how I got to know you from your involvement on the Pints with Jack uh, podcast. And that's a podcast that that very <laughs> systematically goes through uh, Lewis's books. Uh, and it's a fantastic podcast. We were talking about it earlier, how well produced it is. Like when mm. I started this podcast, I like had that one in my mind and thought, oh, if I could just produce, produce it as well as that one. But there's no way I can mm. hold a candle to what uh, <laughs> David Bates on that show uh, does. Yeah. Um, but you guys are great on that podcast. Every, each of you are different and provide your own strengths and uh, it's really, I commend that podcast to all, to all my uh, listeners mm. called Pints with Jack. So, and Jack is C.S. Lewis. That's his, uh, his uh, nickname. So, yeah. and I know. Well, and it's been, a, it's been a joy to be with them for, I, I was actually a guest on season three yeah. when they talked about the way of faces and mm. I had so much fun. I'm like, Hey, can, can I play? And so since season four, uh, we, uh, we've been the three of us together and we're just wrapping up uh, season six. We're recording this in mid-August. And so season six on Out of the Silent Planet is almost done. We're almost mm. at the end of Narnia month. And mm. I'm excited. I think uh, on the last Tuesday of the month, my interview with Rowan Williams about Narnia will wow. come out. So that'll be fun. 
And then we're going to look next season at some of Lewis's letters, letters to an American lady, letters to children, mm-hmm. some things like that. So it's just been a, been a joy to be with them. That's very exciting. And I know yeah. there's a, you know, ongoing debate about what is C.S. Lewis's greatest book on that podcast. And I, and I, I half think that they're like joking with you when they think that Mostly. Till We Have Faces is not, not his greatest book because they uh, really love The Great Divorce, which I love The Great Divorce yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, I'm still very, uh, wet with my reading of this book because I just now read it for the first time till we have faces. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, just after you know, closing the last, uh, turning the last page a couple nights ago, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away by the whole book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't even And know. Mike, have you, yeah. have you read it too? I did. I, I read it about, uh, maybe a little under a decade ago um, and uh, read it in one night and, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore wow. didn't remember a whole lot of it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there. Uh, you know, and so rereading it for this podcast was kind of experiencing it at least in part um, kind of almost yeah. like for the first time again. So yeah. um, just a deeply moving book, you know, if the listeners have not um, have not, uh, been exposed until we have faces. Maybe Andrew, could you give just a brief synopsis of what the book sure. is about? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for asking. And, and actually, reflecting back on it, um, twenty years ago, or a little less than twenty years ago, um, twenty years ago, I did some work uh, with Over the Rhine band from from Cincinnati, and of course, their first album was called Till We Have Faces, mm. um, and their second album had a couple of songs about C.S. Lewis. Um, and so Linford gave me an American first edition of Tilio Faces. The cover looks like this one, except it's mm-hmm. hardback. Um, and that was my first reading. And I kind of had uh, what a lot of people relate is what I, I call the, the Tilio Faces whiplash. Mm-hmm. So you read a lot of Lewis, you love Lewis. A lot of people, when they read Lewis, they kind of fall into the hole and they read everything they can get their hands on. Mm-hmm. And they read the theology and they read the fiction and and then kind of rooting around in the obscure corners of the Lewis library, they come to Till We Have Faces and we read it. And then it's like, what was that? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it doesn't remind us of anything. A lot of times the reaction is doesn't, doesn't seem similar to anything else. What the heck is he doing? I thought I knew Lewis and this came totally out of left field. And that was certainly my initial reaction. I'm like, what the heck is this? And, and it's I a really page turner, it. though. It is a page turner. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's one yeah, of it's really where, compelling. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things where I so I absolutely agree with you. Um, you know that it is, it is unlike anything else he he wrote. Um, people, I think, with a deep familiarity with Lewis, will find him d- continuing to develop many of the same themes that he touches on in other books. You know, someone once said that mm-hmm. everything Lewis thought was in everything that he wrote. And yeah. Till We Have Faces isn't actually an exception to that, but because of the packaging, I guess, um, mm. it can uh, uh, it can seem as though it's completely out of left field when really it's, he's revisiting themes that he touches on in The Four Loves, obviously, um, in The Weight of Glory, um, Surprised by Joy. Um, he's, uh, and then um, The Last Battle. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's certainly a lot of yeah. dovetailing. Yeah. 
Well, and I, I'm grateful you brought up that quote. That's a quote from Owen Barfield, who was his best mm -hmm. friend and fellow inkling, who said, what Lewis thought about anything was secretly, or I'm sorry, what Lewis thought about everything was secretly present in what he wrote about anything. And mm -hmm. so if you notice a theme in Lewis that, that develops over more than one work, you're going to probably find it in everything. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Tilly, and Lewis called, uh, uh, Lewis said of Tilly Faces, he called it far and away my best book. Hmm. And then elsewhere he says, it's much my best book. But he calls it my, a great disappointment um, with the critics. Right. And so he thought it was his best. Um, now, what he meant by best, we could argue that endlessly. And yeah, as you pointed out, we chat about that a lot on, on uh, Pints with Jack, and it's mostly friendly. Um, and, um, and both of the, those guys, you know, love to wear faces. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have done a, a season uh, on it if they hadn't. Um, I absolutely think that it's his best book. And in my, uh, oh, actually 30 years, it was 30 years of reading it and 20 years, almost 20 years of really working seriously on it. I've been working on a study, a critical study of this book, and I'm hoping to bring that out for the 70th anniversary of the publication in 2025. Okay. Um, I think not only is Lewis right in his assessment that it's far and away his best book, I think it is the culmination of everything Lewis is doing. Mm -hmm. Now, Mike, you mentioned The Four Loves, and The Four Loves actually comes afterwards. Mm -hmm. But the framework of The Four Loves is on the, in the second sentence of the novel. Mm -hmm. And I think that he writes The Four Loves because everybody misses the fact that he embedded them uh, mm -hmm. until we have faces mm -hmm. and everything I can find references to every single book that Lewis wrote before and after mm -hmm. until we have faces. Mm -hmm. Let's throw it in some quick historical context, right? Yeah. Lewis becomes a Christian in 19, uh, a theist in 1930. Uh, and then a Christian in 1931, he writes, um, Pilgrim's regress after that. He had a couple of books of failed poetry before that, but then Pilgrim's regress his first book as a Christian Allegory of Love, his first scholarly work in 37 and then or 36, 38, 42, and 45 are the, the Ransom Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, uh, That Idea of Strength. First you, Apologetics, you, yeah. Could you just yeah. briefly, um, when he becomes a theist, just for a frame of reference, about how old is he? So he's born on November 29th, 1898. And actually, I've changed the date of his theism because of uh, yeah. because of a, a, an, an unpublished essay I just discovered. Um, he says Trinity term nineteen twenty nine, but it was actually pr probably June of nineteen thirty. Hmm. So he's about to turn thirty two. Um, let's see, thirty two. Yeah, so he's about thirty one. Okay. So about half of his life he spends in 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 some doubt. Yeah. Um, so. So 1940 is very fruitful. The Inklings start getting together in 1933. A lot of those books are written during that context. Problem of Pain, his first apologetic, 1940. Screwtape Letters, 41. The Broadcast Talks That Become Mere Christianity, 41, 42. Hmm. Um, the, the Ransom Trilogy, uh, Michael Ward warns us not to call it the Space Trilogy because there's no space out there. It's all full. Um, mm -hmm. uh, miracles in 47 great divorce in 46 the mcdonald anthology in 40 in the mid 40s um and then in, from 48 to 53 paul ford and his companion narnia points out 48 to 53 is the five-year period during which he writes all of the narnias 
And he also writes Surprised by Joy around the same time. Hmm. And so that's an interesting thing to look for some autobiography in there. Um, 49, The Inkling Stop Meeting. 50, uh, Mrs. Moore, his lifelong companion, goes into the hospital, dies in 51. 52, meets Joy Davidman in person for the first hmm. time. 53, she moves to England. Um, he uh, gets a, a chair of, uh, of English literature at Cambridge. Um, and 55, spring of 55, as he's, I'll argue, falling in love with Joy Davidman, they write till we have faces together. Mm. And that's published in 56. Um, and um, 55, 56 and realizes that he's in love with her, marries her in 56 to extend his citizenship. In 57, her cancer comes. He realizes he's going to lose her and realizes he's in love with her. And so he marries her again in a religious ceremony. Uh, the priest lays hands on her. She has a remission of cancer for three years. Um, very fruitful time in the late 50s. So um, uh, Reflections on the Psalms comes out. He's working on studies and words. Um, letters to Malcolm working on at that point. 1960, they publish, uh, he publishes The Four Loves, Joy Davidman Dies. Mm -hmm. And so then you have Discarded Image, um, Grief Observed, and Lewis Dies, of course, on the same day as Kennedy in 63. Mm -hmm. So this is the culmination of all Lewis has been doing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's worth kind of thinking of, of this as Lewis really at the height of his powers. Um, and and doing well what he's trying to do. But the so myth, I, I hope that helps. He had yeah. the seed of the idea even before he was a theist, though. Oh correct? my goodness! Like, yeah, no, he's he starts writing about um, uh, the Cupid and Psyche mm -hmm. myth as early as his teens. Yeah, really. Um, and in fact, in one of the early versions, um, he's got a character named Jardis, not Jadis. Um, mm -hmm. And I think he's got. I think there's a Caspian or somebody in there. And so he's trying to write this and he's writing and rewriting this book. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's very typical Lewis, you know, he's, mm -hmm. he's, um, he has an idea and he's working it and working it until it finds the right form. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm correct about the four loves and let me just see if I am. Oh, wait, here's line mm -hmm. two. Um, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. It's the first page. I have no husband, that's Eros, nor child, that's Storgi or affection, nor hardly a friend, which is friendship mm -hmm. or philia, through whom the gods can hurt me, which is the opposite of agape. Yeah. And so that framework for the four loves is really present in Lewis's mind, um, kind of from the jump. Mm -hmm. um, in 1940, he writes a letter to, to Warren, to his brother, and all four loves are in that letter. And the individual loves go further back. And so he's thinking about love all along. And that's, I think, one of the first clues I'd really give your listeners. And I suggest to people, people often, when you say C.S. Lewis, what's the main theme that jumps out and that everybody thinks of? Apologetics or children's stories. <laughs> that's typical. <laughs> but what's the theme? What's the, what's the topic? What's the draw? I'll give you a hint. His wife was named this. Joy. Okay. Right, surprised yeah. by joy and longing yeah. and zenzuked, and it's all over the place. But interestingly, at the end of Surprised by Joy, which Joy Davidman typed up, by the way, hmm. um, at the end of it, he says, What then of joy? Well, it, uh, 
it's happened it happens as frequently as it ever did but it doesn't have anything like the kind of importance i once gave it i now i now realize that joy serves only as a signpost to something other and outer mm-hmm. well in the lectures there's a recorded lecture uh, for the four loves um, and he says that love is where we go out of ourselves towards the other mm-hmm. so joy is a pointer to the other or the outer joy which is actually a description of the lack right it's longing it's lacking joy points to the fullness that is love so the main theme of all of lewis's work is love not joy and so we have faces kind of locks that into place well you to your point about the four loves as well i mean and and the connection with longing so a little bit of context for folks just in case our listeners you are unfamiliar with the, the story um till we have faces is a retelling of the myth of cupid and psyche so um there are different sources in which the the story is related in antiquity um and depending on which source you're reading there might be some details that are different please jump in anytime andrew to fill us oh, yeah, out. Yeah. But, um but the the basic idea is you have um two older sisters and the young the the third sister the youngest is psyche psyche is profoundly beautiful um and uh she uh attracts the hatred of aphrodite um because of her her beauty and so uh but meanwhile aphrodite's son cupid uh, has fallen in love with psyche and so he brings psyche to himself and uh weds her in a way and her two older sisters are jealous uh psyche is instructed that she must never look on the face of the god uh while they're Mm -hmm. making love or at all um because this will attract the attention of aphrodite but her sisters find her where where cupid has brought her and they they see the big palace and all that which is an interesting detail that lewis switches around in a very profound way crucial um yeah uh plays into sort of his ruminations on unbelief and doubt um but uh the sisters persuade psyche to light a lamp and look on the face of the god and when she does she's instantly uh rejected sent away and yeah, a drop through... of oil from the lamp wakes up psyche or wake, wakes up eros wakes up cupid yeah yeah and he does you know he gets and mad. so and so she's sent away and she's tortured by aphrodite through these three or so trials all of which mm-hmm. she makes it through by the help of of nature itself coming to her aid and you know um and when all is said and done she's endured the trials of aphrodite cupid receives her again and she's made a goddess so there's a great mm-hmm. poem called an ode to psyche by uh yates uh where mm-hmm. he calls her the late-born goddess um mm-hmm. which maybe this is, this is the connection to some of uh, Lewis's ideas in the weight of glory is this idea of um, should we were we to look on someone either in hell or heaven we would be looking on something that, that either a monster that we would that would be beyond yeah. our greatest imagining or and this is key at the end of till we have faces something we would be tempted to worship an eternal uh, splendor right yeah. yeah yeah that's right um and you, you to your point about the four loves, you see that progression. So the till we have faces is a telling of that story with some mm-hmm. very significant alterations on the part of Lewis. Uh, 
through the eyes of one of those older sisters, one of the gentle mm -hmm. sisters. Um, yeah. And Lewis says time. in the, for those who read the book, um, I'm sorry that it's an afterword. Uh, I would absolutely put the note as the foreword. Mm -hmm. So read the note mm -hmm. first. It mm -hmm. gives a summary of the myth. And then he says, the central alteration from the myth I received from Apuleius, which almost thrust itself upon me, was when the sisters came to see the palace, right? Yeah. Psyche marries Eros or Cupid. You know, it's Cupid in Roman and Eros in Greek. When she, when he takes her, um, he builds her this palace. Um, and she invites her sisters to come and her sisters get jealous of her because she's got this finery in this beautiful palace. And so they encourage her to kind of spoil her good thing. Um, and he said, the central alteration that thrust itself upon my mind was that the sister could not see the palace. Yes. Yes. Right. And so she comes and she finds Psyche. Um, uh, but that's a crucial, crucial mm -hmm. scene. Right. Mm -hmm. Remember when, and Sam, you just read the book. Remember she's going up the, and I just reread it. She's going up the mountain and she hears what she says is not a voice, but if it were a voice, it would have said something like, um, there came as if it were a voice, no words, but if you made words into it. So she's going up the mountain in the story, Psyche is offered as a sacrifice to the yeah. gods. The gods demand the goddess Ungit, who is Aphrodite, demands the sacrifice. And she's the perfect one. And she's hanged on a tree and she dies. And so the whole story is told through the mouth of the ugly mm -hmm. eldest sister, whose name I pronounce Orwal. Mm -hmm. um, and so Orwal loses her sister, which is a tragedy to her. Um, and then she goes up to bury Orwal and then face this kind of bleak life psyche. afterwards. Yeah. Or bury, yeah, bury psyche. Yeah, sorry. As she's going up the mountain, she hears this voice that says, why should your heart not dance? Oh. And she says, it's the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? Mm -hmm. I had to tell myself over like a lesson, the infinite reasons it had not to dance. Mm -hmm. And here's where you start to find that Psyche is, well, frankly, there's no other way to characterize it. Psyche is a liar. She lies to herself, but she lies to the reader. Or Wait, or, 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 for example, on Orwell is a liar. Or Orwell. I'm sorry. Yeah. Orwell. The, the Orwell, narrator, sorry. the older yeah. sister, Orwell. Is... Orwell, the narrator. She says, I um, being for all these reasons free from fear. And then the rest of the book is filled with her fears. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Orwell uh, starts lying. Why should my heart dance? Mine, whose love was taken from me? Well, her love wasn't taken from her. Her love was given to God. I, the ugly princess who must never look for other love, but she has friendship love. She has family love. Mm. She has the love of her, um, uh, of, her, of her people. She doesn't have romantic love, but she's got lots of other love. Although she the does, drudge of the... Hmm. She comes to know what it is to love someone romantically, even if it's, it's yeah, unrequited. She, but she, right. Yeah, right. And so she has mm -hmm. romantic love as well. She's surrounded by love. She goes through this, all this list that she has to resist, and she's resisting this deep invitation to joy. Mm -hmm. The crucial thing is she never stops and says, I'm sorry, who's speaking? Mm -hmm. And it's love, it's Eros. Mm -hmm. Now remember, Eros's name, if you read it in medieval poetry, is capital L, love. Mm -hmm. Cupid is often called love, that's his name. And so here's Cupid who's love, and his mother Venus is love. 
right? Or Eros and Aphrodite. She doesn't realize that Eros, the god of the mountain on whom uh, on which she's climbing, invites her to joy. Hmm. Her refusal of that invitation to joy blinds her. And seeing is enormous in Lewis. Mm -hmm. So think about Lucy, the lucid mm -hmm. one who sees everything, right? She goes to get the hatchet to chop off the serpent on the Dawn Treader because she knows where everything is on the Dawn Treader. She sees, and Lucy sees, I'll argue, because she loves, mm -hmm. right? Her gift from Aslan is a cordial, or from Father Christmas is a cordial, and corday means heart, heart. right? And Aslan whispers in her ear, courage, dear heart. Lucy sees because she loves. Hmm. Orwald doesn't see because she refuses joy, which is the invitation to love. Hmm. And when she goes down into the valley, she sees Psyche alive, which astounds her, but sees her as if she's in rags mm -hmm. and as if she's living on the heath instead of in this glorious palace. Now, the moment is crucial, um, so, and she thinks Psyche's crazy, whatever, mm -hmm. but after meeting with her, and Psyche says, I'm in my palace, and Orwell can't see it, and they realize they're estranged, that night, she, uh, Orwell gets up and goes to the river and kneels down to drink, and when she looks up, she mm -hmm. sees the palace, yeah. mm -hmm. and she, the way she describes it, there's nothing in her country of Gloam to resemble it. She's not making it up. It's not a fantasy. She sees. Well, watch this. What's the opposite of pride, friends? Humility. No. The opposite hmm. of pride is chapter, pride is chapter eight of book three of mere Christianity. Hmm. Pride, the great sin. The next chapter is charity. Mm -hmm. I suggest in my teaching and in my theology that the opposite of pride, which is about me, is love, which is about you, mm -hmm. right? Pride is to go into myself away from others. Love is to go out of myself towards others. Mm -hmm. When Orwell assumes, just barely assumes the physical position of humility, of abandoning pride, her very physical act of kneeling is enough to give her vision. Mm. And that kneeling allows her to see the palace, right? In um, Letters to Malcolm, Lewis says the body needs to pray too. So even though inadvertently, she's not meaning to pray, she's just quenching her thirst. But then again, we know that thirst is important in Lewis, right? And Jill and all the rest, yep. there is no other stream. Her thirsting, her kneeling, and God gives her this vision. And she sees the house of love. And then she lies to everybody about it for the rest of her yeah. life. She doesn't yeah. tell the fox. She doesn't tell Bardia. She doesn't tell the priest, right? Mm -hmm. And that central lie colors everything else. But she sees the house of love, and then she refuses to do that. And isn't that us in our own hard-heartedness, mm -hmm. right? How often do we see the, 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 the evidence of love and then just harden our hearts against it? Mm -hmm. You know, if we got somebody who bugs us, who we consider an enemy, and something good happens to them, are we glad? No. Right. And so this kind of, this thing is at the, I think the center of Tilia faces. I agree. And, and the, you bring up, you know, when, when an enemy gets something good for them, you know, our reaction to that central to, you know, there's a, there's an analogous experience that, that um, 
that people might might have that really seems to be kind of um, uh, the working tension between Orwell and Psyche, which is the tension of um, when you have sort of like you can imagine a, maybe a married couple or a brother and sister or two sisters in this case who who grow up sort of seeing eye to eye and then what let's say one of them converts to a different faith, right. which is more or less what is happening. You know, Psyche in many yeah. ways is the voice of joy in in the book. You know, before the night before she's sacrificed, she's expressing that on some level she's longing to get up the mountain. Mm -hmm. She's longing for, for life. The God. Yeah. Yeah. She's longing for the God on the mountain. And Orwald does not share that longing. And so it's a uh, this is a comparison that's been made before. It's much like a, a married couple where one of you know maybe both of them are unbelievers and one of them embraces the faith. Um, sure. And the other has to to watch a loss occur in some ways. Mm -hmm. Like they're no longer seeing eye to eye. And that's kind of the the working the 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 tension that exists between the the two characters. And for Orwell, um, seeing Psyche in her joy, you know, she she has this idea that well, I'm gonna I'm gonna save her from this. I'm gonna protect her. I'm gonna mm -hmm. you know, she's mine to protect. Mm -hmm. And uh, the arc of the story is Orwell finally being brought to a place not where she's um, seeking to take Psyche for herself, but to give all of herself yeah. to, to Psyche and love. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah, that's the move of love. And like I Sam having just read it, yeah, I, jump in. So I think C.S. Lewis wants you to wants you to, um, I guess, react like this, to think that uh, Orwell's the hero and to be cheering for her. And so there was some point in the book where I realized, even though I like realized, wait a minute, Orwell's not a good character, and. <laughs> I probably shouldn't be cheering for her, but I understand completely everything she's saying and how she's reacting and what she's going through in her point of view. Like I get it completely, but then it was just kind of confirmed to me that my, um, the ordering of my loves in my life is as off at times, or maybe most of the time yeah. as Orwell's yeah. were. And so yeah. I'm able yeah. to be so sympathetic and kind towards Orwell only because I'm just as messed up as she is. Listen, by writing it in the first person, we are Orwell. Yeah, right. Yeah. In fact, what are the first two words of the book? I am. Oh, yeah. Right. I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. Right. And the, I have to speak through Orwell's voice or Orwell mm -hmm. speaks through my voice. I am Orwell. And isn't that just like it? We think we're pretty swell people. And then we realize how crappy we are, especially in the face of love and how unloving we are. Mm -hmm. And it brings this kind of, this crashing denouement, this, this self-revelation that's despairing and hopefully leads to conversion. Um, by the way, at the end, or at the beginning of book two, yes. Orwell calls us our attention to the words no answer. 
Yes. And she mentions it a couple of times in book two. I ended my last book with the words, no answer. So and, some context, um, the, the Tilio faces is broken into two sections. Mm -hmm. That's what Andrew's referring yep. to here is the first section is about the first 250 pages and it's called book one. And that's she what, wants to accuse yeah. the gods. Yeah. And book it's one her, called, yeah. Yeah. And then there's yeah. book two, which is about 50 pages. So just a little context for our listeners in case they haven't read the book. Right. And it's her, it's her complaint against the gods, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, uh, I say, therefore, that there is no creature so noxious to man as the gods. Let them answer my charge if they can. It may well be that instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into a beast, bird, or tree. But will not all the world then know, the gods will know that it knows, that this is because they have no answer, mm. right? Mm. My life is terrible because the gods took, took Psyche from me. And here's my complaint. Mm -hmm. And then she says, not many days have passed since I wrote the words, no answer, but I must unroll my book again. I, it would be better to rewrite it from the beginning. To, since I cannot mend my book, I must add to it. To leave it as it was would, to have would be to die perjured. Mm. And that's where my contention that Orwell is lying to herself and to yeah. us as readers. Yeah. Right? But... As a good English major, I noticed that she refers to the words no answer at the beginning of book one and at the end of book one, chapter four. And I'm like, well, gosh, if the last two words of one are important, maybe the first two words of book one are important. And when you put the first two words and the last two words together, you have a summary of book one. I am no answer. And at the end of book two, she says, I know now, Lord, and now she's not mm -hmm. complaining, but worshiping. Mm -hmm. She calls him Lord. And who's she speaking to? She's speaking to love. She's mm -hmm. speaking to the God of the mountain, Eros mm -hmm. Cupid. I know now, Lord, why you give no answer. You yourself mm -hmm. are the mm -hmm. answer. Mm -hmm. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words, words to be led out to battle with other words. Mm -hmm. And then I know what her last words were. Yeah, because it cuts off uh, at the end. Right. You are yourself the answer before your face questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might. And then we have an M dash. Mm -hmm. And then Arnom comes and says, from the markings after the word might, uh, we think the queen's head must have fallen on them and she died and we cannot read them. So she writes something, but we can't read it. But I know what she writes. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we got to go to the last battle. And at the end of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, remember as night is falling on Narnia and all the animals are streaming in the door, the, and the sentient animals, the talking animals, mm -hmm. if yeah. they are in rebellion and look on Aslan with hatred and fear, they go to the left and they lose their ability to speak. Mm -hmm. If they look on at Aslan with love, they go to the right. Mm -hmm. I know now why you offer your, why you give no answer. You yourself are the answer. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might what? Love you. Yeah. Love you. Yeah. And the last two words of book two are love you. And then why does she die right then? Lewis is out of ink. Lewis and Joy Davidman, who are writing the book together, are out of ideas. Orwell just happens to be that old. Why does she, why is her head on those words? 
the same reason why um, she bowed. When she bowed at the river, she was able to see. She probably was bowing her head in prayer. Which is how you do it, mm-hmm. right? And in book one, by the way, this is fascinating. I was at the Bodleian last summer and read the correspondence with the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says the gods can't meet us face to face till we have faces. Yeah. But actually in the original, it was the gods can't meet us face to face before we have faces. Mm-hmm. But then when they settle on the title till we have faces, the publisher encouraged Lewis to change before to mm-hmm. till. Mm-hmm. And the reasons why the gods won't answer us is because we don't have ears good enough to hear the greatness of the love that they would speak to us, mm-hmm. right? And so she presses her head against the words, and now she has a face because mm-hmm. what's written on her forehead? Mm-hmm. You love. What's <laughs> it'd be backwards? Or backwards? Yeah. Backwards is love. Love you or you love. Yeah. That's the center of everything Lewis is trying to do. He's trying to get us to see the love of God. Mm-hmm. It's what he calls elsewhere the intolerable compliment. How can we encompass the love of God? And that's what Tilia Faces is about. Mm. Well, and it, it it comes well, it comes into play as well as the the very central issue of identity in the book. Um, mm-hmm. or, Orwall, uh, prior to that moment where the whole book culminates, and it's. Uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, but is that the first time that Cupid is addressed as Lord, not just by her, but by anybody in the book? And especially yep. with the capital L. I mean, so he he yep. purposely that's where you see him completely fade the line between the myth right. and the Christian faith. Um, but right. that that moment is a is the culmination of um a sequence of dream visions that or- Orwall mm-hmm. is experiencing. Yeah. And uh, Orwall, up until this moment, she she's uh, been this amazing queen, greatly accomplished, and she from the moment she becomes queen, she has worn a veil. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the like as soon as you're obscuring a face, we talk about English majors. Mm-hmm. My bachelor's is in English as well. Um, as soon as you see someone obscuring a face in literature, generally you're ta- like identity is is likely to be on the author's mind and. Um, there's there's explicit uh you know moments in the book that that address the issue of identity you know uh yeah. Orwell no question writing the, the queen might kill orwell you know she says i, I i've killed right. a man i'll kill orwell right. the, the right. male is right. hiding orwell the king she has a dream vision of her dead father and, and so oh, yeah the she says the queen you know rushed away from me and i was again orwell and so yeah, i did very central to this and in the dream visions what you have is this kind of stripping away of of the lies we tell ourselves about ourselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and and how is it that that these lies are stripped away well until we have faces it's through suffering yeah yeah and and self-abnegation right yeah putting herself in the proper place is that yeah. why like I'm a little bit confused about this, but um, like Orwell realizes that she's Ungit and she is Psyche and all those identities coming together. Talk about that. Yeah, dude. And, and just, you know, for the record, we may have to do a part two because we're just (laughs) scratching the surface. And Psyche means soul. I want to tell people that too, from the Greek. So watch. Yeah. 
So when we find Psyche, we know that that's a signal name, right? Mm -hmm. That's a name that means something. And so I started playing around with the names. Um, now, this is not the center of my research, but I think it's fascinating. We know that the same year, Lewis wrote an, an essay about a country called Nyatirb. Um, mm -hmm. And if you flip that backwards, it's Britain. Okay, Britain. Right? Yeah. And he's talking about Xmas and Christmas and the fable of the land of Nyatirb, where they have this holiday called Xmas. And, <laughs> and so we know that Lewis is doing that. We have no evidence that he does this on purpose. But watch this. Psyche means soul. Who does she marry? Cupid. Cupid, whose mother is Venus. She marries the god of love, who himself is the son of the god of love. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like anything you do on Sundays? Because that sounds like what I do every Sunday, right? <laughs> the church is the bride of Christ, that there is a, a mystical spiritual marriage. And so you have the human soul marrying the god of love, who himself is the son of the god of love, right? Mm -hmm. It's what J.A.W. Bennett, who took over the chair of English or medieval Renaissance literature at Cambridge, he was who he, he succeeded Lewis in the chair. He calls this book in light on C.S. Lewis. He calls Tilia Faces a very elegant allegory. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a profound allegory for the love of God. Yeah. Now watch this. Um, psyche is a, a signal word. And Orwell hears the God of love saying, you are Psyche too. Mm -hmm. So, and she too can be in a loving relationship with the God of love. Yes, I am Unget too, right? And she has the dream vision of her father and he takes her to the pillar room and they dig down three times. And finally he holds her face up to a mirror and says, who are you child? And she wails and says, I am Unget. But what she's saying is, I am love, because Unget, the fox tells us, is Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. right? I am love, and she despairs. But she doesn't understand what love means until the very end. I might love you, but you already have been loving me. I am love. I am psyche. The gods flow in and out of one another. But that threefold repetition, the digging down and then the mirror, should remind us of the voyage of the dawn treader. Because Edmund has, or Eustace, I'm sorry, has this kind of anti-Narcissus experience. Mm -hmm. Narcissus looks in the pool, sees how beautiful he is, and he dies of starvation because he can't tear himself away. Mm -hmm. Eustace, being such a jerk, goes and steals from the dragon's hoard and thinks dragonish thoughts, and he wakes up, and the ugliness inside of him is projected outward into his dragonness. Mm -hmm. And he looks into the pool and realizes how ugly he is, and he lives. It's the opposite of, of Narcissus, mm -hmm. right? He abandons his narcissism. He begins to feel alone. He begins to miss the others. And then three times he tries to tear himself out of his dragon's skin and then Aslan tears the skin off. Mm -hmm. It's that same three digging down. It's the mirror. It's the self-realization of who I really am. And then love restoring us to our true identity, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a clear echo. And that's one of those places where um, where Lewis is echoing all of his other books. But she realizes that she is loved. Now watch this. Because of Nyatir, I started flipping names backwards uh, or playing with names. Bardia, the soldier, is also the name of like a supply dump in World War II. It's a military outpost. Mm -hmm. 
Bata is Italian for she strikes or she hits, which is certainly what Bata did. Mm -hmm. The nursemaid, you know, was abusive of them. Redival, flipped backwards, is la video. And in French, it means the empty one. (laughs) And as empty-headed a character you've never met as Mm -hmm. Redival. And then um, uh, Trom, the king, if you flip it backwards, what's that word? Death, mort. (laughs) Mort. Right. And it evokes not only the deadly self-centeredness of Trom, but also Mort d'Arthur, the tragic king who marries too young, right? Mm. Which is what Trom does as well. Mm. So it's got all those evocations there. And then I did it to to Orwall. And I did a minor in Latin. Orwall backwards is lauro. And what it means is by means of or with Laura, uh, laurel. Lauro means with laurel. Mm-hmm. It's the ablative of means. You know how queen, queens are are crowned in the ancient yeah, with world? Laurels. With laurel. And her name is with laurel. Mm-hmm. And then just for fun, I flipped around Ungat. Tignu is Icelandic for Tigan means worthy of honor. Tignu becomes, Tigan becomes Tignu only once. And it means worthy of honor. And it only becomes Tignu when it's the feminine accusative. Mm. I think this is a grammar joke because Orwall is accusing mm. Ungat all the way along when Ungat is really worthy of honor. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no evidence that there's anything to this. This is just me sure. speculating. Sure. But those names are all kind of playing together. Yeah. And that whole identity thing that you pointed out, Mike, is. It's crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, go on, Sam. No, I want to sort of shift to in the in the time that we have, like yeah. answering the question: Why did C.S. Lewis write this kind of a book for his time? And then, what can till we have faces say? Uh, I guess to our time, because mm-hmm. the one thing that is really resonating with me about the book is how much of the, um, I guess the enchanted to use a hip word these days, how much the enchanted cosmology is a part of their worldview. And that even though Orwell, uh, really hates the gods and hung it, like she, she still believes in like Mm -hmm. her, her whole world is still, uh, very much, um, in faith, I guess, or believing in that. And, and guided and directed by that. And you, mm-hmm. you notice this when the Greek, the fox, the teacher comes in and he starts to introduce these kind of finer, lighter ideas and, um, and even a, a finer looking goddess, you know, a statue of a goddess for Ungit than the rock yeah, yeah, that yeah. it was. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, that the worldview, that the cosmology starts to lose its grip and power that it has. You know, and yeah. now you fast mm-hmm. forward to... Lewis's day and even our day, like the uh, enchanted cosmology is like totally been replaced with materialism and sure. scientism. Sure. And, and sure. like, I found myself just as I was reading it, like longing to be a part of that kind of cosmology again, where everybody mm-hmm. believes and, and yeah. your life is guided by that uh, belief. And there, there's a few episodes in the, in the book that, that I could touch on, but 
like that's one issue I can see CS Lewis addressing that, you know, shift in the culture. Um, yeah, I guess leave it at that. But what other issues do you think or, or well, that to, one? Too? Can I jump on that? Yeah. Sam? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think what Lewis does with that very, with the, like you could call it the worldview of Orwell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That alone needs a dissertation. Like the the sure. stuff that he's doing with that is just super cool. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. you know, yeah. where first on a literary level, what Lewis needs for the book to work is he needs somebody who is absolutely engrossed in the mm-hmm. world of Loam, that mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. deeply embedded paganism. But he mm-hmm. needs to create a character who can plausibly reject and critique it. Like, yeah. um, and so he has this character, the fox, um, a slave brought in from Greece who is made the tutor of Orwall and introduces her, mm-hmm. introduces her, like you said, Sam, to these sort of finer points of um, philosophy, of, of philosophy, yeah, but also poetry, yeah, but poetry too. Mm-hmm. And in particular, um, the fox is a stoic, mm-hmm. yeah, and there's there's yeah. mentions made throughout the book just oh, very yeah. briefly of like yes but the fox said there's a there's another way that the greeks thought and it's it's constant mm-hmm. references to plato the mm-hmm. platonic mm-hmm. philosophy and and mm-hmm. what what's central uh well maybe not central i i would argue that you know one of the key texts of plato is the symposium and at the center mm-hmm. of the symposium is the idea of the ascent of love mm-hmm. and in many yeah. ways what you're seeing until we have faces is Orwall undergo the ascent of love through the four loves. Mm-hmm. So she begins yeah. in Storge, um, you know, Redival and, and Psyche, um, the mm-hmm. fox, and then subsequently. Redival says, when the when the fox came, you love me little, and when uh, Psyche came, you love me not at all, right? Yeah. Uh, failure of love. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. So you're you have the phileo between the the fox and and orwell and orwell and bardia eros uh, at least it's unre- it's unrequited but orwell feeling right experiencing eros toward bardia and then all of these are slowly in the final book she's having to revisit yep. each of these relationships but what exactly. each of them are doing are bring her to higher and higher mm-hmm. plateaus until she encounters love itself this is and then lo- but lower and lower re- levels of yes. self-realization because each of those yes. incidents um r- makes her realize that she has thwarted love yeah she got in the way of the love between eros and and psyche she got in the way of the love between the eros between bardia and ansit she didn't yeah. love red of all with the story she deserved she didn't love the fox mm-hmm. she didn't love anybody and she realizes yeah. that she's miserable and has failed at love all along exactly but love still loves her exactly right? Yeah, it's, Bruce it's, Coburn uh, says, "When you love love, then love loves you too." But with Orwell, even if you hate love, love still yeah. loves you, and that's the gospel. Mm, yeah, uh, Sam, to your question about where it kind of sits, Lewis is writing. I swear to you, he's writing a modernist slash postmodernist novel. Yeah, right. It's full of despair. There aren't there aren't any heroes. There aren't anybody who you can really cheer for, um, and that's it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings, right? Frodo can't get the ring over. It's Smeagol mm-hmm. who has to mm-hmm. do it. And there's hopelessness and despair, very typical of the period in which she wrote. And that's, I think, one of the revolutionary arguments to the work I'm doing is to place Till We Have Faces and Lord of the Rings within canonical modernism. Yeah. Right? They have all those same things the city, language, despair, fracturing, all that same stuff. Um, and so it's a modernist novel, it's a feminist novel. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a female lead character. Lewis says, I've done, I've done what no other author in English has ever done before. I've written the length of a book through the mouth of an ugly woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a psychological novel. Yeah. And it's very prescient. So, I mean, and what Lewis is doing, people usually miss. At the same time, he's boldly proclaiming the gospel. Yeah. He's proclaiming the love of God for the worst of sinners. And so yeah. I think that not only is it Lewis's best book, but in my opinion, I think it's an undiscovered 20th century masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, I think he was aiming for a level of a Milton or a Hamlet. And I think that he got there, except oh, it yeah. was just too obscure. Yes. And that's part of what I'm writing my book about is to say, we need to reconsider this because this not only shifts the gravitational center of Lewis from joy to love, but then he speaks to his generation and the kind of jaded, sarcastic mm-hmm. cynicism that follows hard on the heels of postmodernism and in which we are still wallowing mm-hmm. is answered by till we have faces, which is why it continues to reach people and really haunt them. I think Lewis is really, really speaking eloquently to our age, even 60 years later. And Andrew, I, I hope that your work on it really does um, shift things around. Um, you know, I know uh, th- there's a guy named Gavin Ortland who's also been fascinated by the book and, um, mm. And I think uh, if ever the two of you mm, that'd be great. brought into a room, <laughs> it would be an awesome uh, dialogue yeah. to, to facilitate. Yeah. I, um, you know, he he has no ambitions to become a scholar until we have faces. But in a video he made on YouTube, um, which is kind of his the platform that's gained him the most attention. Uh, he's uh, a doctorate in church history, but um, a pastor. But in that very video, he's he's calling for more attention until we have faces. That the, there there's a fecundity that the the book has that has mm-hmm. really been untapped. And so I'm glad I'm glad for your work on it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Can I? I want to touch on one more thing, if that's if that's yeah. okay. And that is her. Sure. And that is Orwell's ugliness. Uh, mm-hmm. Just as a word yeah. of, I mean, you're you're talking about how the yeah. gospel is present in that in the book and. I just that makes me think of Orwell's ugliness and how her ugliness turns out her weakness turns out to be her her great strength. And there's a stirring, very stirring scene at the end of the book where I think it's at the end of a book one, right, where she goes into uh, Orwell goes into uh, um, Ansett. Well, what was the scene? No. The, the scene? No, not with Ansett. When um, she goes to make an offering, oh, to the new goddess. Oh no! Uh-huh. But anyway, she goes to make uh, an. She sees someone come make an offering, and there's the ugly um, stone of Unget next to oh, the yeah, foxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The foxes' new yeah. uh, beautiful Greek child? statue, right. and yeah, the yeah, yeah. and the older woman says, "Well, I never offer my offering to the beautiful one, but I like." making my offering understand me. She wouldn't hear my prayer because she wouldn't understand me. She, she identifies with kind of the, the ugliness, the wornness, the, the thickness, the bloodiness of, of, of Unget. And like, that's the part where that got me to tears. Just, just thinking about that. And then the connection with Orwell's ugliness and her being able to understand Mm -hmm. just all of that. Yeah. I think it's powerful. And, And that ugly goddess, um, it's the one that's relatable um and and it's and it's her physical ugliness Mm -hmm. as well that's that's there but um i think that that's kind of crucial 
that it's a relatable thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And um, and and she couldn't relate to the pristine goddess. Mm-hmm. And God stoops, you know, to meet us where we are. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's inscrutable, you know, these depths of love. And I'm thinking of yeah. like applications so. for readers as they're reading this, thinking to themselves, we can't help but think, well, where are my ugly places? Where do I fall short? I have this longing to be this other way, but I'm not. But what yep. can God do with that weakness? He can do a lot through that weakness. He can, he's making yes. you like relatable, for instance. He's, and yeah. yeah, there's, there's so much to that too, that people can find great encouragement about, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, we'll, yeah, we'll this ra- is just, uh, yeah. We'll wrap it up. I'll ask you for uh, your final, uh, each of us to give our final thoughts before we wrap it up. Mike, do you have any uh, thoughts that you have? Um, a follow-up episode is very attractive to me right now. <laughs> it seems I feel like, like we I should just scratch the surface of what I wanted to ask you, Andrew. Yeah. But okay, um, you know, I uh, I really appreciate your insights. Appreciate the work that you've put into this, and um, you know, I feel I feel very eager to um, to try to look up more of more of what you've put out there because I, uh, you know, it really does, like, like you said earlier, you know, we really only scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I would just say, you know, to, to listeners read this book, it will be challenging to some, um, you know, I think if, if you, if you're into literature, um, it is a page turner. It's actually a very easy read in many ways. I mean, he, mm-hmm. the prose is so smooth. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a master of, um, of writing something that's very profound and yet um, mm-hmm. innocuous in many ways. But if you're not into literature, it, it could be a little bit of a slog just because it doesn't offer up its treasures to you readily. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's it's going to reward slow, thoughtful reading, even at the very same time that it is uh, it mm-hmm. has all the power of the Greek tragic element. And so it, it it's constantly moving you from from mm-hmm. one horror to the next in many ways. And it's quite a dark book uh yeah but i just i i i just want to tell everyone read it and then reread it it will reward quite a lot of review mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah and you go ahead no Sam, andrew last thoughts you have computer. go ahead um yeah no i totally agree um and i'd love to do a follow-up episode maybe listeners can send in questions and we can just you know do a do an episode of of you know taking questions um, or something, but um, <clears throat> for me, it really helped. Following through this book defined my theology of ministry, which I had to write out in in, mm-hmm. uh, in seminary. And um, my website is mythoflove.net, um, and the book, the tentative title is C.S. Lewis and the Myth of Love. I think Lewis's point was to help us to think about the love of God. Mm-hmm. And even by hiding it, he wanted us to see it more clearly. Mm-hmm. Michael Ward has discovered this kind of hiding to make things clear in Planet Narnia and screw tapes that way and everything. Um, so I think that his goal is charity, his means is clarity, and his method is mythos, it's story. Mm-hmm. I think Lewis uses story in all of his writing to help sharpen our minds and sharpen our visions to see everything more clearly Mm -hmm. but what we should see the most clearly is the love of god in christ Mm -hmm. and that's i think what lewis's goal was 
And the threefold, you know, kind of focus of my ministry is to help people grapple with the love of God, right? The lectionary just a couple of weeks ago did Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Who can keep us from the height and the depth and the length and the breadth? Mm-hmm. Nothing can keep us from the love of God. And then to respond to that overwhelming love by loving him in return mm-hmm. and by I might love you is the response of us all. Mm-hmm. And then by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And what we see in Orwell is the negative example of what we should do. Love God who loves us mm-hmm. and love our neighbors instead of being selfish towards them. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's kind of sets the sail of the whole mm-hmm. course, not only of my ministry as a priest, but of my Christian life. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, this book is in the, the heart, the heartbeat of all of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'll, um, I'll wrap it up. My, my thoughts um, about the about that key passage itself, where it says, um, "Till we have faces," um, and I, I may be wrong about a lot of this. <laughs> what I'm about to say, but this is how it struck me that she wrote down her complaint, you know, in the first book, and they, and the gods ushered her along to the court, at, you know, towards the towards the end, and she goes up to give her long complaint, but when it comes out, it's not the complaint that she wrote down. It's as if she's trying to give that accusation against the gods. But what really comes out in a sense is, is something far worse. Even it's more the honesty. Mm -hmm. It's none of the BS. And that's why I want to, it's none of the bumper stickers. (laughs) And that's why that resonated so much with me. It's just, it's just like a child in her tantrum, just giving, uh, her, her, like, there's no persona, there's no mass. It's just, it's, 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 no veil. It's ugly. That's right. And that's the moment where, um, they say, well, it says to have heard myself making it was to be the answer. Like the gods Mm -hmm. didn't even reprimand her for that. They just let her get that complaint, that story out. And then she says something about the fact that each of us has that kind of ongoing complaint running in our hearts at all time. And I think, gosh, that is so true. No matter what I do, whether I'm at work, interacting with family, there's like this ongoing story or narrative that's just churning and churning and churning in my heart Mm -hmm. that can be pretty ugly. And, but yet I disguise it with BS. (laughs) I disguise it Mm -hmm. with, you know, nice doctrines or things that I think that other people want to hear or what God wants to hear or what would make me look good. But when, when we're engaging in that kind of false behavior, we don't have a face yet and mm-hmm. we're, 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 we're still veiled and not until, yeah. and I don't, I know, I don't know how this is possible in this life, but my challenge to people and to myself is to try to get to that point is to, to tap into that real Sam, the no BS Sam, mm-hmm. and to be as vulnerable mm-hmm. and exposed uh, and true and authentic with people as I can. And mm-hmm. yeah. um, and the response that Orwell gets is like, she's loved. Yeah. She gets a face. And the way to do that is to continue to tell your own story. She said that God's probed me with my own pen. Mm-hmm. And the writing was the answer. Mm-hmm. But the answer right? Is thou, is you, O Lord, or love. Mm -hmm. Love is Mm -hmm. the answer. 
And so even as we write the ugliness of our honest story, what we find in those lines is there's previous writing that, 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 that towers over us. And it's God who has inscribed our names in the palms of his hands. Mm -hmm. No matter what our story, our story is love at his own expense. And part of what Orwell is doing is what Lewis did mm -hmm. in Surprised by Joy is seeing that his story is pointing to something other and outer is pointing towards the love of God. No matter how ugly our story, it's not beyond the redeeming pen of God mm -hmm. overriding us with the love mm -hmm. that is our faith. And people like may hear my little rant and think, oh yeah, that's exactly what culture is saying. J just be yourself. No, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I think the, what the culture is is doing when they say be yourself is, is like an ego move where you actually don't like your ugly true self. And you try to change yourself or become something else that culture embraces or that you think, but because you're not satisfied, you're not content with your ugly self and, and God loving you. So I think it's a complete different move. Um, Mike, well, what were you going to say? Well, think about the context of which it happens. Like this is her bringing her complaint against the gods. She is in a way looking for a theodicy. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. the, in terms of like what the literature is doing there, Lewis is saying something about what vindicates God in the face of suffering, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so she's suffered all this stuff. She's brought her complaint against the gods. And when she goes to read it in the dream vision, she, she just has this scrap of paper and written on it is her, her true ugly guts on the page. Mm -hmm. And what comes out is just refuse. Like it's all right. Here's here's me. I'm gonna bring like my charge against the gods, and there's there's nothing there except, in a way, the vindication mm -hmm. of all the choices the gods have made with her. Um, it's yeah. it's the the very revealing mm -hmm. of what has made it so she could not see the palace. Um, why in the other dream vision she's trampled by the goats. Um, mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like she's she is literally pouring forth the reason why she's so uh, so the gods, the gods, are, the well, gods then, don't it, give it, the theodicy she gives the yeah justification then yeah and that's why yes. at the end and that's why at the end of it the gods say are you answered and she says yeah. i am answered and what her scrap said was me 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 yeah. And the answer to all of that is you, right? Is getting on the knees and seeing the house of love. It's what Lewis said at his first theology in Problem of Pain, that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Yeah. It's Pam who's echoed, in, Pam from Great Divorce, who's mm -hmm. echoed in, literally echoed. Um, the boy was mine, 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 mine. Don't you got, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. and Orwell says, Psyche was mine, mine, mine. Don't you gods know yeah. what mine means? The gods are the only ones who can possess somebody else without entrapping them. Yeah. Right. And so the opposite of me, 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 me is you. And that's why Lewis at the point of conversion says, you know, picture me there in my rooms at Maudlin night after night, the moment my mind lifted even for a second from my work sensing the unrelenting approach of him who I most earnestly desired not to meet. And finally, mm -hmm. in Trinity term of 1930, what I greatly feared at last came upon me. I knelt, mm -hmm. which was appalling to him, 
because his previous religion, his last religion before theism was solipsism, only me. Mm. I knelt and I prayed, right? Thou, you. Mm. And I admitted that God was God. And Orwell gets to that same point. So in some ways, Till We Have Faces is just a retelling of, it's Orwell's telling of Surprise by Joy. Yeah. And at the end of ourselves, that's where love comes in. Yeah. Right? It's Joy Davidman's word, and God came in. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, why this is such a powerful, powerful book. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up with that. That's just amazing. Um, yeah, I want to do another episode. It seems like we are just uh, getting the cart rolling. Uh, but Andrew, <laughs> Andrew Lazo, thank you for joining us uh, today for episode sure. uh, 89 on uh, Till We Have Faces. And uh, if, if you guys want to learn more, um, go to Andrew's website. It was myth, mythoflove.net. Is that what it was? That's correct. Okay. Yep. And learn more about him. Check out uh, what he's doing on Pints with Jack podcast yep. as well. And if you want to know more about Bumper Sticker Faith, go to bumperstickerfaith.com. And uh, we'd appreciate your any um, Patreon support. We can get there if you like these uh, conversations, want to keep them going. Um, happy Wednesday. We like to say happy, uh, not hump day, but happy bump day to everybody today. <laughs> for Bumper Sticker Faith. Uh, so um, we'll uh, see you again. And remember, guys, don't go stepping in no. See ya. Bye-bye. <laughs>